This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly, and welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, I'm going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more. And I say I, not we. I'm missing something this week. My partner, Carol Masser, she is taking a well-deserved vacation. But as you'll hear throughout the show, I was joined throughout the week by Bloomberg anchor and a good friend of mine, reporter Scarlett Fu. She was along for the Bloomberg Business Week show. We had some great conversations. This week, the cover story, Americans, well, they aren't making babies. And it's not just bad for maybe us as humans. It's bad for the economy. Plus, why veteran investor Alan Patrikoff, he's betting on aging consumers with a new $32 million venture capital fund. And how do we step up and make sure that communities get the resources they need. We'll hear from Georgetown University professor Marsha Chatlin on her new book. It's called Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, all about McDonald's and its role in racial diversity or lack thereof. An amazing look and an amazingly timely book as well. But first, the U.S. reaching a grim milestone this week, to be sure. Coronavirus deaths topping 150,000 people. Well, Dr. Bruce Farber, he's the chief of infection diseases at Northwell Health. He joined us to discuss where we stand with the virus and developments around a vaccine. We started off by talking about the shift in cases in the Northeast and the success in this part of the country at fighting COVID-19. It's dramatically better than it was obviously months ago, and it sounds like it's dramatically better than it is in many parts of the country. We're sort of in the eye of the hurricane in the sense that things are quiet. Uh, our healthcare facilities have single-digit admissions of COVID patients, not zero, but generally one to three per day. The total hospital census is dramatically down to double digits. Uh, many of the chronic patients who are still around are severe, long-term survivors that are struggling to get off ventilators. Um, and uh, the number of sick patients being admitted is dramatically lower. Um, so things are good. Elective surgery has restarted. People are screened regularly before coming into the hospital. When they come into the hospital for even treat and release things, they're often screened, and they're screened before any elective surgery. So things are good. They're certainly not normal, and I don't anticipate they will be for a long time. You know, um, the New York Times has a map on its website that tracks the number of cases across the country and the Northeast, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut and New England are in the best position, right? We're light yellow versus dark red for uh, Florida and California. However, New Jersey's transmission rate, according to Bloomberg, uh, a story on top worldwide, has risen to 1.14, a 13 week high. Dr. Farber, do you think it's inevitable that New York City will also see a rise? I think it's, uh, I don't know, inevitable, but it's certainly a risk, and I think we're preparing for it. It's hard to stay locked down, number one, and it's hard to prevent people from reintroducing the virus from other parts of the country, and that's a reality. Although, as you know, there's quarantines for, what, 31 states of people coming in. They're impossible to enforce. They're difficult to monitor. And uh, we see a lot of people coming up from Florida, you know, who are nervous in other states who have relatives and other people in the in the Northeast. So, you know, inevitable, I don't know, but it's certainly a risk. And it's hard to imagine that um, there aren't going to be bumps along the way. Well, you know, it's interesting, Dr. Farber and Scarlett uh, raised this uh, as we were 
preparing for this segment, very rightly, we were just talking about this party in Southampton, uh, you know, that the CEO of Goldman Sachs was the DJ for and, you know, it upset the governor of New York pretty tremendously. There must be a lot of heightened interest uh, and concern on the part of public officials. How are the public officials feeling about kind of where we are and what are they most worried about? I think people let their guard down, quite frankly. I'm always amazed how intelligent people know what they should be doing, but, you know, a few months go by, they don't hear as much, the hospitals aren't busy, and they let their guard down. And um, it's not right. I agree with the governor in this instance. Um, You cannot have large parties. You know, you can't open up these bars. You can't have crowded restaurants and crowded parties and weddings and concerts. We're just not there yet. And I don't know when we're going to be there, but whenever that happens, there's going to be a cluster. We've certainly seen clusters just in a couple of local retirement parties and other birthday parties. Um, Sometimes they're... uh, outside, but most often they're in enclosed spaces where people take off the mask to eat and drink. Okay, you can't have large parties, and a few people would compare school to partying, but can you have kids go back to school then? So, as you know, it's an extraordinary complicated uh, issue, but I would summarize it by saying the safety of the schools is going to be predominantly dependent by how low the transmission rates are in the community in which the school is located. So clearly it's not going to be safe to open schools in southern Florida and Houston at the present time. In New York, that's a different story. I mean, it's as safe as it's going to be. At some point in time, we're going to have to open schools. We're not going to have closed schools for years and years and years. And no matter how optimistic you are about a vaccine, I don't think there's any realistic way this thing is coming to an end within the next year, even if we have a good vaccine. So... I think it is safe to carefully open schools, but it's not going to be fail-proof. And there are going to be outbreaks. There are going to be little clusters. They just have to be whacked down when they occur. You have to have good protocols. You have to have careful monitoring. You have to have available testing. And you have to be prepared that it's not going to be perfect. And that's Northwell Health Chief of Infectious Diseases, Dr. Bruce Farber. We always learn so much from him, in part because he was in one of the systems that had to deal with COVID-19 early, early on in this epidemic. We know that the New York area was such a hotspot, really the epicenter of this disease outbreak early on when we think about March, April, and May. It's a very different world right now here in the tri-state area, but very different uh, outside of this area as well. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, what veteran investor Alan Patrikoff says he's doing in the third chapter of his life and why he's says he's backing startups riding what he calls the silver tsunami. Yeah, it's an interesting one. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today I'm bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. I was joined by Scarlett Fu, Bloomberg Television and radio anchor in Carol Masser's absence. Well, famed investor Alan Patchkoff, he's making his next big bet. He's made a lot of them over the years across the technology landscape. This new project, it's a little bit different. He's teaming up with entrepreneur and former Thrive Global president Abby Miller-Levy. They're backing startups focused on aging consumers. They both joined us to discuss. In all the years I've been in this business, I've never seen an idea resonate so effectively. And it's just a great experience to be partnering with Abby, who has been indoctrinated in the wellness area for 
the last at least the last four or five years, and uh, I've been focused in this area for the for the last year. And together, we're an incredible team. And uh, I will tell you that the idea has just resonated based on on all the media coverage and all the uh, inbound inquiries we're getting today. I can imagine. People. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a very exciting. So, Alan, take us back a little bit here because you're talking about making investments in companies and financing products and services for an aging population and investing in these older entrepreneurs. Uh, basically, people over the age of, what, 55, 60? How did you come up with this idea? What happened to get you thinking about this opportunity? The idea came together because Abby has been working on this idea for a year, mm-hmm. and I, I've been talking about it. She'd been doing something, and she was preparing to launch. And through uh, one of my sons who said, you know, Dad, you ought to get together with Abby. He knew both of us, obviously. And he said, you're, you're both focusing on the same area. And I, I guess you'd have to be honest and say I got to it because my wife, uh, has Alzheimer's and has had it. This is her 11th year. Mm. So I've watched her slow deterioration, but I more so I've learned, uh, took the time to learn about the aging market and what the needs are, which are so different than what the millennial generation is. And, and you know, so much of our money is being spent, of uh, marketing dollars are being spent on the, on the uh, uh, younger generation, the millennials, where the money the money is in the older generation who, you know, made it and, are, are, and, and now need all kinds of service. This was this whole concept came about pre-COVID. Right. COVID is just frosting on the cake, frankly. Abby, you know, your background, as Alan has so nicely teed it up for us, is really just made for this. Tell us about the idea from your perspective and how you really locked in on this through your work at Thrive and, and SoulCycle, among others. Well, thank you so much for having us today. We're, we're thrilled to, to be with you. Um, you know, the the interesting thing for me as I looked at the space around um, aging and older adults where there are so few startups, so few entrepreneurs who are designing new businesses for this consumer. And as Alan said, this consumer, that is the fastest growing segment of our population, about 20% of our population, 60% of our net worth as a country, um, and less than 10% of the marketing spend. So, I was really excited to, um, you know, think about how we can get more uh, entrepreneurs interested in the older adult consumer because to date, I think there's very outdated images, and I'm sure you would agree, on what it is to, uh, to age, particularly age in America. And Alan's the perfect example of that. At age, hope you don't mind, Alan, at age 85, you know, Alan bike rides 10, 15, 20 miles a day, was in the ocean you know, uh, for, for, for a dip just the other day. And, you know, with prime time, this is his, you know, next new venture, um, his next new entrepreneurial venture. So I think for us, we're really excited about uh, finding founders and entrepreneurs who are designing for a much uh, more up-to-date view of what um, aging looks like. Yeah, and health, of course, health care and wellness is just one part of it. I've seen home, home builders, for instance, um, not just target the uh, senior living population, but the active adult population. So folks who are over the age of 55, but who are still very physically active, like Alan. Um, Talk a little bit here about why there aren't other VC funds who are targeting the same demographic the way you guys are. I mean, this all makes great sense, and the numbers are behind you. You would think that more people would be doing this. You know, we, I'll be honest, we get that question often, and I don't want to claim pride of ownership uh, 
because a lot of VCs have had what they call the silver tsunami as a bullet point on their investment teams. I mean, it's hard to talk to any health or wellness-related uh, venture capital fund that isn't eyeing this population because, to your point, on the data. I think what's prevented um, having more involvement in the space is, you know, first or rather, what I think is one of our advantages is really being specialized. So for, you know, for us to really understand, you know, how to reach this consumer both through B2B as well as B2C, um, how to, um, you know, look at this consumer, you know, in their heterogeneity since a very diverse audience, um, I think is something that is a real advantage for primetime. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, the, it's not really the VC's fault uh, at the same time because there actually hasn't been as many startups focusing on this audience because if the majority of founders are people in their 20s and 30s, they're typically solving for the user needs yes. that are closest to them. And so what we're seeing, though, and, and it's been interesting, you know, I've been tracking this, this segment for, you know, at least a year now, and, and I've been working on this idea for a few of the, for a few years, but really since November when Alan and I met, uh, kind of teamed up, um, we've seen really a steady increase in the number of business plans and, and early stage uh, businesses that have come across our, our inboxes, and it's only accelerated with COVID. Right. Uh, and I think part of that is that more founders uh, well, first of all, if you take, take a look at what the COVID, COVID impacts had two, two, two dramatic sides on both supply and demand. Abby, let me start with you. We were talking earlier about the opportunities here. Have you made an investment yet in this fund? Absolutely. So, you know, this is uh, something while we, we just closed our first closing of the fund, it is still open until October for uh, strategic investors. But um, we have made four investments to date. Um, and are about to close on two additional ones. And I think it's really a sign of just the, the momentum um, in the space. Uh, while we're specialized and focused on the older adult as consumer, we're pretty diversified from a sector perspective. So our investments we've made to date are in financial services, telemedicine, um, e-commerce, and media. So, you know, really across the board, um, you know, as, as we look at opportunities for founders. And that's entrepreneur and former Thrive Global President Abby Miller-Levy, joined by veteran investor Alan Patrickoff, well-known in venture capital and political circles. I'm fascinated by what they're doing, in part because you got to watch someone like Alan Patrickoff. Over decades and decades, he has not just seen but participated in the growth of venture capital betting on some very well-known startups, and now he's looking at a new market, and that bears some attention. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, how the pandemic is impacting the travel industry. We'll hear from Travago CEO Axel Heffa. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today I'm bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations I had along with Scarlett Fu on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show this week. Carol Masser is on vacation. Well, travel, speaking of vacation, continues to be, unfortunately, one of the industries hit hardest by the pandemic. International travel, of course, is one of the areas that is suffering mightily. Well, Travago CEO Axel Heffa, he was back with us. He joined us from Germany to talk about why, and we started by asking him about his backyard. In Germany, is fortunately significantly better than what we've seen uh, last earnings. Um, so um, there is quite a bit of travel activity. The health situation is, relatively speaking, stable. 
And uh, just to give you give you an idea, if we compare the the travel um, uh, environment in Germany, um, all leisure nature destinations like beaches and mountains are getting close to uh, last year's volume, whereas city trips and international are at around 50%, so still significantly down. That is incredible. I just think about how many people here, um, Jason's working from home, so many of our colleagues are working from home. No one's taken any time off in the last four or five months uh, because you're working from home, you want to stay productive, you're just grateful to have a job at this point. Uh, Axel, who is taking these vacations? Are companies um, granting vacations the way they were every year? Yeah, I mean, p people are taking vacations, um, but um, and and in particular, families are obviously desperate in this, this difficult situation to also get some rest in the summer, uh, which is also something that you see across Europe, but not to the same extent um, than in Germany. And I think, to be honest, in particular, in a situation where a lot of people are working from home with all the stress that is related to that, it is important to take a break. And we, for example, um, have uh, have basically introduced a mandatory vacation of one week in August for our employees to make sure that they do get some rest and also do take some time off. Well, I wondered about that, Axel, sort of the, the running of the company, because obviously we talked to you so much about sort of what you're seeing in terms of trends and, and uh, travel on on the parts of so many people around the world. But I do wonder like, what the challenges have been for you running your operation. <laughs> I, I, that's difficult where, where to start. Huh? So the, um, in, in March, basically our revenue collapsed to, to close to zero in April. And um, at that point in time, clearly, um, I mean, you are initially obviously in paralysis. So, so what is going on? Um, what, what shall we do? And um, the, the, the thought that, that it was really helpful to us was that we very early on accepted that the travel would disappear at least temporarily and said, okay, how will the world look in the future? And we, we defined three phases of recovery, no traveling, some traveling with restrictions, which is basically where we are right now, and then the new normal, whatever that will look like, and work backwards and said, okay, what do we need to do for the traveler, for our uh, customer, and, um, and what do we need to prepare for? And so despite the fact that the timing of all these phases is completely uncertain, it gives you a stability and also a clear focus. And, uh, and focus and structure is what in these uncertain times is, is extremely helpful um, to give guidance and also, also emotional support, to be honest, to all of us. That's a really great way of breaking it down. And I want to pick up on that point. If we're in the some travel phase right now and eventually we'll get to the new normal, what are you seeing in the some travel phase now that will become part of the new normal? Will people avoid cities? Will people avoid the United States? Will they choose to go on um, vacations that are local and can be reached by car as opposed to by plane or by boat? So what we do, do see right now, and, and most pronounced obviously in, in Germany as there, the situation is very stable, but pretty much in most of the markets, um, is that, that the first destination and the first vacation that, that people and travelers want to do is, is really to the nature, beaches, normal summer vacation destinations, and just get a break. And um, so that, that's, I think, clearly a trend. And there... What you also can see is that destinations that can reach by car and even more importantly, left by car in case something would happen um, are clearly favored by many, many travelers. The second thing that you can observe is that um, apartments and vac um, vacation houses are more popular than before because um, a certain segment of travelers is preferring to, 
to be really on their own um, on vacation. And in the U.S. in particular, what we've seen is that there is a lot more um, um, intrastate travel. Mm. Um, So going to closer destinations that are better known and that just feel safer. And uh, I do think and we overall think that this trend to more local travel will continue for the foreseeable future. Whether it will remain and stay for the very long term, I think that's too early right. to be um, to be seen. But international long haul travel, I think, will be will be muted for um, for quite some time. And that's Travago CEO Axel Heffa joining Scarlett Fu and me from Germany on the heels of his earnings, giving us a sense of how travel looks in different parts of the world. And some themes are emerging here as we look at when people will start traveling and where they're going to go. And the answer is they're getting back slowly and they're staying pretty close to home. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. We talked to someone else who's very familiar with the travel business. He's the former chief ethics officer of Airbnb, but we weren't talking about home sharing. We were talking about integrity. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today I'm bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations from our daily radio show this week. And we talked a little bit about travel with Axel Heffa earlier in the show, just a few minutes ago. So another big name in the travel business, certainly one that has become very popular over the past few years, is Airbnb, the famous home sharing service, the unicorn that everyone's waiting to go public. We caught up, Scarlett Fu and I did, with the former top lawyer at Airbnb. He's a guy named Rob Chestnut. He also was a top lawyer at eBay. He's a former federal prosecutor. And we weren't talking to him about his jobs at any of those places, at least not directly. We were talking about a new book that he's put out. It's called Intentional Integrity, How Smart Companies Can Lead an Ethical Revolution. And this conversation, interestingly, happened during a week where big tech executives were on Capitol Hill, the leaders of the biggest technology companies in the world, virtually zooming in or WebExing in to Capitol Hill to face a lot of scrutiny from lawmakers about their role in society, their lack of competition, and what they've been doing along the way amid a lot of investigations, a lot of big, almost existential questions about the role of technology in our lives. One of the core issues is what effect all of this technology is having on us as humans, but also how these companies are run. And that was very top of mind for Rob Chestnut. I think everyone needs a, like a North Star in life, you know, a purpose and sort of a commitment to live uh, with integrity as they can best perceive it. Uh, but people also, I think, need to have some self-awareness and listen to people around them uh, and be willing to you know, adjust their views uh, as they learn more information. Uh, you know, it, it seems like we do a lot of partisan thinking in this country where people kind of get stuck on one side and just feel like they're dogged in committing to stick by it no matter what. And uh, that, that's not going to get us in a good place. So tell us about the, the sort of the foundation of this book, because I'm, I'm fascinated by your background. You're a federal prosecutor. You went to work for eBay, I believe, and ultimately at Airbnb. What led you? What, what was sort of the, the genesis or the spark? Well, I've been, I've been dealing with rules, I think, my whole life. You know, as a federal prosecutor, I prosecuted uh, espionage cases, uh, you know, which I think it shows about as much lack of integrity as you can you could ever find in a workplace. Aldrich Ames, right? You were involved in that one. Aldrich Ames. 
that I, I, he was one of the cases that I prosecuted when I was in Northern Virginia. Uh, and then at eBay, uh, I started their trust and safety department. You know, all the rules around what you can sell on eBay. You know, can you sell guns and alcohol and tobacco products and drugs and the like? So I've been dealing with rules my whole lifetime. But, uh, you know, just the last three or four years, I've really gotten a sense that the world is changing. Uh, people are far faster now to call out bad conduct by leaders and by companies. You know, I, I refer to it, you know, as an integrity revolution in the book. Uh, people are really desiring when they go to work to have a positive impact in the world. And if they perceive the values of their company to not be aligned with their own values, in the past they were quiet. Now they're communicating with each other on Blind and Slack. and They're blogging about it. They're tweeting about it. They're even organizing walkouts. And, and I think it's not just employees, it's customers. You know, we are in an age of conscious consumerism yeah. where you know, consumers, if they don't like uh, the way that a particular company operates, they're going to take their money and they're going to move it somewhere else faster than ever before. So the genesis for the book, I think, is was really recognizing this sea change right. and the, the, this heightened expectation that the world's putting on leaders and on companies. And it's an effort to try to help companies adjust in this new world so that they can really take advantage of it and ride it as opposed to fighting the tide and ultimately really hurting their brands. You know, Rob, let's talk a little bit about the tech world, if we can. You've been a part of it uh, in many ways. And as Scarlett pointed out, and as we talked about earlier, you know, this is a day where we had some very well-known tech executives on Capitol Hill. It does virtually, that is, uh, some cases uh, not being able to ironically figure out the technology to testify, but we'll set that aside for a second. Um, How big of a deal is it or how big a deal should we make of it that we have some big existential questions around the role of technology in our lives and the behavior of big tech? Well, I remember back when tech was the darling, don't you? Everybody yeah, of course. Tech companies. They were going to save the world, right? And, and boy, things have changed. And I think uh, a, a lot of that, I think, has been the, their own doing in, the, in, in a number of the large tech companies. I think it's uh, a singular focus on making money, uh, which is, of course, critical. But you've got to be thinking about other stakeholders. You've got to be thinking about your employees. You've got to be thinking about the communities where you do business. And I think in, in that, uh, in, on that scorecard, a number of these big companies haven't done as well. And that has caused the world to, to take a hard look at them. Yeah, the, the microscope is out. And uh, I, I think we need to see them get ahead of the curve. I think Microsoft, for example, is doing a pretty good job of this, actually, uh, recognizing that the world needs more from big tech. Mm-hmm. They need big tech to step up and solve some big problems uh, instead of solely focusing on that quarterly, that, that quarterly reports number. Think about, you know, I, I have to look at Facebook. So they've got to deal with misinformation and hate on their platform. I think they've got to own up to it and their failure to do it. And I think they've been kind of stubborn about this is really hurting the brand. How much of that do you think is tied to the fact that a lot of these big tech companies are still fairly young companies run by their founders? You bring up Microsoft and that's an 
you know, at this point, an old company. Uh, the guy who runs it, Satya Nadella, is not Bill Gates. Um, he's a hired hand, essentially. He's a professional manager. Whereas Facebook is run by Mark Zuckerberg, Amazon is run by Jeff Bezos. They are still in the mindset of building their company, building market share, uh, growing as fast as they can, as opposed to understanding that they are behemoths now. I think some of it may be the, the lack of experience. And, and, you know, so, someone like Satya Nadella perhaps has been around a little longer, sort of understands this idea of, of building a, a loved brand for an infinite time horizon. But, you know, look at Brian Chesky at Airbnb. I think Airbnb has done pretty well overall in uh, recognizing that there's something bigger than just getting big, uh, that the way that you do it and the values that you demonstrate while you're going big uh, make a huge difference. A lot of it is who you listen to. Uh, I think that you know, some of the, the, the younger tech executives, it isn't the fact that they're young and inexperienced as much as are they really demonstrating an open mind, a curious learning mindset to listen to people uh, who are outside of their tight inner circle and learn from them. Uh, I, I do think fa Facebook could do a better job in this regard. And Jason, that's why diversity and inclusion is so important to make sure that you don't have the same kinds of people in your company that you talk to all day long. Totally. I was, that's exactly where I was going to go next. And, and Rob, I do wonder, along those exact lines, it feels like these dual crises, the pandemic and the virtual world we're living in, you know, Zoom to Zoom or however you're communicating with people, as well as a long overdue reckoning when it comes to racial inequality, it feels like it's laid bare a lot at all sorts of companies, big and small. How do we take advantage of that and, and maybe reset ourselves? Well, I think we need to start with an understanding that we all come to the world with our own specific set of goggles and lenses. We see the world through our own eyes and our own experiences. But what we sometimes fail to understand is that there are a whole broad set of experiences out there that diversity can really help us learn from. I'll take Airbnb. You know, the, when Airbnb faced a discrimination crisis several years ago on its platform, I think part of it was caused by the fact that there wasn't enough diversity in the leadership of the company back then. There are people who had actually experienced discrimination who could have helped, I think, be a little more proactive in, get, in getting on top of these sorts of issues. Uh, diversity brings the power of human experience beyond what any one individual can do. I love walking into a room and seeing people that look different than I do because it means that we're going to get some different perspectives that I couldn't begin to understand. Uh, but those are critical, I think, in dealing with, with, in dealing with crisis and dealing with uh, the racial injustice. You've got to have that understanding inside your company at the leadership level. Rob, you talked about stakeholders earlier on, and that brought me to the Business Roundtable's uh, definition of a corporation or purpose of a corporation. Last summer, they came out, they revised their mission statement, essentially saying that it's not just uh, for the shareholders, right? They're, they're not just committing to shareholders, they're committing to their employees, to customers, to suppliers, to the communities as well. How did you interpret that? Because it, it was sufficiently vague that anyone can walk away with the interpretation that they want. Well, I think it was a powerful move. Uh, we're talking about abandoning now decades of thinking about the purpose of a company and why it exists. Uh, and, and I think the fact that the Business Roundtable did this was a big step. But you're right, there's still a lot, uh, there's still a lot to interpret. 
And that was Rob Chestnut, the former chief ethics officer at Airbnb, that company's top lawyer. He worked at eBay. He also was a very successful federal prosecutor. So he understands not just ethics, but integrity. And that led him to write this book. It's called Intentional Integrity, How Smart Companies Can Lead an Ethical Revolution. Fascinating to get some time with him this week and at this moment where we as a country are facing dueling crises. And there are a lot of big questions about the role of companies as we think about where we work, what we buy, and who we buy it from in an entirely different light. Well, plenty coming up in our next hour. Americans, they aren't making as many babies during the pandemic, contrary to what people might have thought about a pandemic baby boom. And that's bad for the economy. So says Peter Coy. It's the cover story this week in Bloomberg Business Week. Plus, Georgetown University professor Marsha Chatlin on her book, Franchise the Golden Arches in Black America. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Jason Kelly. Plenty ahead for you in this hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including Georgetown University professor, my alma mater, proud to have her on the show, Marsha Chatelaine. She's got a new book. It's called Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. Incredibly timely, a look at one of the best-known companies in the world, and certainly in the United States, McDonald's its role in the struggle for racial equality. Plus, we'll hear from Stanford Graduate School of Business Dean Jonathan Levin and Associate Dean Sarah Soule about that same issue. Stanford, it's the number one business school, according to Bloomberg Businessweek. Carol Masser, my partner, and I have been there the last couple years to talk about what they're doing. Well, they've got a new plan as it relates to racial equity. And speaking of Carol Masser, you're not hearing her this week. She's on vacation. But you will hear Scarlet Food throughout these conversations. She was nice enough to join me throughout the week on our daily Bloomberg Businessweek radio show. Let's begin this hour with our Businessweek cover story. Economics editor Peter Coy writes, I'm quoting here, pandas and white rhinos aren't the only creatures that are unsuccessful at mating in captivity. Yep, he's talking about human beings. He's talking about us as Americans. The U.S. could see 500,000 fewer births next year. That, of course, will have strong repercussions long after the pandemic is over, especially on the economy. Peter and the editor of the magazine, Joel Weber, joined us with this story. Peter and I uh, started talking about this uh, in the broadest sense of demographics um, earlier in the year. Uh, And then, you know, we started uh, this lockdown thing and we kept talking about it because I was like, man, there might be a lot of babies that come out of this. And so we kind of stuck with that. And then it sort of went the other way. (laughs) And what we expected to be a baby boom ended up being more of a baby bust. Uh, so we called, um, you know, sex columnist slash um, <laughs> uh, economist Peter Coy and asked him to do that. Um, so, Peter, can you walk us through what, what you what you were able to discover as you were reporting the story? Yeah, I mean, as you said, uh, you didn't get a chance to put a lot of babies on the cover. Um, but uh, I think they came out OK anyway, because we, we came up with a good storyline, which is not only is there a decline in uh, fertility, fewer pregnancies, but it seems as if it's probably not going to be made up after we're out of the recession and the pandemic, so that the consequences will be long-lasting. You know, think about it. Babies who are not born in 2020 
are people who will not be alive in the 22nd century. I mean, this is a this is in a way in some ways the the number of missing people from the population because of the decline in births is bigger the number of missing people from the population from the deaths from COVID. And it's not and, and those numbers are, are actually worth just kind of dwelling on for a second because we're up to like 150 deaths in the U.S. now, but it could be a number, a number as high as 500,000 babies that are not born next year, according right. to at least uh, uh, bookings. Uh, yeah. Scarlet. Bookings, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. so some staggering numbers there, but when you think about it, when you take a step back, policy is not aligned with having kids. They are damn expensive, and sorry for, for just swearing there, but you are on your own to find childcare, education right. is super expensive, healthcare. I mean, right. people, when they get healthcare, they don't want to leave it. Then, of course, there's a motherhood penalty and fatherhood penalty, and very rarely do you see middle-class families with more than three kids. Um, Peter, was the birth rate rising or was it holding up pretty well before the pandemic? The U.S. had been known for a long time for having an unusually high fertility rate compared to other uh, wealthy nations. Uh, as recently as 2007, it was 2.1 uh, children per women, woman, which is uh, replacement rate. That if you if you have that rate, the U.S. population would be stable over time. But it started falling in the last recession. Remember that one? Yeah. Um, and then it didn't recover afterward, as people had expected. Uh, it's down to under 1.7 in 2019. Who knows, it's going to go even lower now. So it's not as low as that of, say, Japan, South Korea, Western Europe. Mm. But it's, it's definitely below replacement rate. And now this comes along. And that, that magic number, Peter, for, for sort of uh, a population is 2.1. Yeah. Um, and, and so walk us through uh, why that number matters so why, much, where why, the U.S. Yeah. is now, and, yeah. and uh, what implications it has for growth. Well, just think about it. Um, each um, couple, just imagine you have a married couple, they produce two children, they replace themselves. The reason it has to be more than two is that not everybody will survive to adulthood and have children of their own, so it's a little over two. And, and as I said, we're down at, at around 1.7 now in the U.S. Uh, you have countries like Russia, I mentioned South Korea and so on, that are down at 1.3 area. Uh, actually, Russia came back a little bit, but yeah, um, 1.3, it means that your population is going to be falling if it's not already falling. Well, and the employment picture, I mean, you mentioned this in your story, and I, I think this is an interesting thing. And I mean, this is more, I, I guess, sociological, maybe psychological. I mean, there are people who are just experiencing a high level of unemployment, anxiety, all sorts of things, you know, worried about their yeah. health. People just, like, don't want to have sex. They're not well, in they the mood. Have sex, but they're doing it with protection. Who knows? Let's not. I deliberately didn't get into that, and then Jason goes and brings it up. <laughs> and that's Bloomberg Business Week economics editor Peter Coy and the editor of the magazine Joel Weber. And one of the things I loved about this interview, you can actually hear Peter Coy blushing a little bit when I bring up the idea of people actually having sex. So uh, that was a fun moment for me across the week. But a really important story to understand the economic implications of where we are, maybe an unexpected one. Captivity, it isn't so good for reproduction, it turns out. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, our next guest reveals the untold history of how fast food became one of the greatest generators of black wealth in America. 
We'll hear from Georgetown professor Marsha Chatlin. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today I'm bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily radio show this week. Carol Masser, my partner, was on vacation, but Scarlett Fu gamely filled in throughout the week on Bloomberg Business Week. And I want to bring you our conversation with Georgetown professor and author of Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, talking about Marsha Chatlin. This is an incredibly compelling book, in part because it breaks down at an incredibly timely moment the complicated and intimate relationship between Black America and McDonald's. Listen in. The story of McDonald's and Black America starts in 1968 after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And essentially at this moment, like our moment today, people were really reflective about the various pressures that were happening in predominantly African-American communities that had been cut off from resources. And in addition to many of the concerns of communities, people said that they would like to see more Black-owned businesses. And this was a moment in which a lot of corporations were shifting in that direction. And so McDonald's was a leader in the sense in recruiting African-American franchise owners to go into African-American communities and to build McDonald's, the brand, as well as use their restaurants as a way to reinvest in communities. And so how did it come about? I mean, because there must have been some sort of candidly, you know, just knowing a little bit about the history, some tricky mechanics and politics around that at the time, especially in the 60s, Dr. Chatlin, help us understand those. Right. 1968 is a really pivotal moment because the mainstream civil rights movement um, is trying to decide what direction it should take. And having having seen so many legislative victories in the 1960s, but not actually seeing this translate into economic opportunity, uh, better schools, better access to housing, a number of leaders in the civil rights movement really wanted to work with business and corporations to bring in these opportunities. In addition to that, many white franchise owners no longer wanted to do business in group in communities that were becoming increasingly black or were segregated and all black. And so you see this convergence of an economic white flight as well as the support of the civil rights movement. And then you have President Richard Nixon, who is investing in this idea of black capitalism, where he's putting money in business. But one of the things that I think is important to note is that None of these approaches necessarily get at the root causes of structural inequality, but you start to see business becoming part of the conversation. Business becomes part of the conversation and it becomes part of the community. You write about how these Black-owned franchises of McDonald's uh, shape the community around them. They, it, it goes beyond providing jobs. They play a leading cultural role. Talk a little bit about that. Right. So African-American franchise owners take on the role that black business owners have historically taken on. And that means that they're providing other resources and communities because of the color line in government services and opportunities. So they're underwriting youth programs at schools. They're making sure that first jobs are actually being created in the communities. They are sponsoring things like the early Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. So you start to see their influence, not just in the business sector, but for historically black colleges and universities, for the creation of the all-American basketball team. And so these black franchise owners become incredibly visible and incredibly popular in these communities 
because, as I say in my book, these communities are cut off from federal resources and other types of opportunities in order to have their needs met. So, Dr. Chatlin, how far does it extend beyond McDonald's? Because we do know that today in 2020, the gap in wealth between black Americans and white Americans is massive. Why didn't this catch on more beyond McDonald's? Well, I think that the reality is is that you can't solve robust and complex and deep social problems simply by um, having business lead the way. That Mm. we have a public sphere, we have public policy, we have public resources like taxes in order to do that. But what it does reveal is that this moment that McDonald's is in right now, saying that they stand for black lives, donating to the NAACP, it's not new. We have a 50-year-plus history of McDonald's inserting itself into these civil rights struggles so that they can appear that they're on the right side of history. But in this early period, when McDonald's was extending the opportunity for franchising, people did not have the full understanding of the consequences of fast food on the American diet, as well as the concerns about wages in the industry. Today, supporting black lives vis-a-vis McDonald's has more to do with the quality of work and benefits and providing for its people than some of these other solutions from the past. Very well said. And I'm struck also by the parallels to today, this idea that um, companies, the private sector, kind of pick up the slack when the government, the public government, uh, is unwilling or can't provide a lot of the the funding. How did you come to writing this book? Well, I I was concerned about that very issue. I think that this um, book is a story about how these relationships are complicated. On one hand, we can't say that we're concerned about the gap in nutrition and health outcomes and access in African-American communities without understanding the history of how fast food became such a presence in certain parts of our country. And we can't say that it's simply a matter of giving people food choices and then they'll follow without understanding the other kinds of relationships that businesses have with communities. And we also have to remember that if we want to solve problems, we have to invest in the public good, the public sphere, and we can't allow corporations to lead the way. One of the things that I was struck, I had the opportunity to serve on a panel with Congressman Lewis, and he described the moment after the 2016 election as some of the most challenging and trying of his life, which is an incredibly um, poignant thing to hear from someone who lived through so many times of turmoil. But I think that at both moments, 68 and today, We have a growing consciousness among a larger group of people about the problems of racial injustice. And that's Georgetown professor Hoya Saxa and author of Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, Marsha Chatlin. Fascinated by this book. Hat tip to my co-host this week, Scarlett Fu, for bringing this book to our attention. And man, this book could not be more timely as we start to understand the economic intricacies of racial injustice that has lasted centuries in this country. A really important look and a really important book. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, speaking of racial inequality and efforts to combat it, how Stanford is working on a new plan to increase racial equity on its campus. It's the number one business school, according to Bloomberg Business Week. We'll hear from Stanford Graduate School Business Dean Jonathan Levin and Associate Dean Sarah Soule. This is Bloomberg. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today I'm bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations from our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. Scarlett Fu was joining me throughout the week. Carol Masser is on vacation. Well, our next guest hail from the number one business school in America, according to none other than Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser and I have been there the last couple of years to celebrate Stanford's Graduate School of Business. So we were really glad to welcome back the dean, Jonathan Levin, as well as Associate Dean Sarah Soule. They've both been guests on this program before, and they talked to us about the school's action plan for increasing racial equality and equity. It's important for them as a school. It's also important because they are in the heart of Silicon Valley. It's a very unusual time. There's nothing, you know, a, a university campus is meant to be a place with interaction and students uh, and faculty and staff and everyone just bumping into each other. And right now it feels uh, lonely and empty on the Stanford campus. Yeah, that interaction is key, and it's what contributes to the success of institutions like Stanford Graduate School of Business. Uh, Associate Dean Soule, I, I want to bring you into this conversation here because obviously, as with other universities, uh, Stanford is trying to, of course, increase its diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, uh, really increasing the representation of black and other disenfranchised uh, people, not just among students, but also in your faculty as well. Talk a little bit about the plan to increase racial equity. How do you go about that in this kind of environment when people cannot get together and the interaction is so artificial and, and, and stilted? Yes. Thank you. And Scarlett, it's really nice to meet you. Nice to meet another uh, Cornell alum. Oh, um, yay. Go Big Red. Yes. Yes. Uh, let me step back a little bit and say a word or two about what it is we've been working on here at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Uh, in 2019, we rela- released our first diversity, equity, and inclusion report. And one of the goals that we issued in that report for the academic year of 2019-2020 was to spend some time studying and thinking about how we could do better as a school, as an institution, to learn from and um increase representation and increase a sense of an inclusion and belonging for groups that otherwise before had been underrepresented in our efforts to date. So what we've been working on really started last year. And and what we are announcing today is what we're calling the Racial Equity Action Plan for the school. And as you noted, Scarlett, one of the things that we are working on is representation in particular. And so what we are, are thinking about in, in, in this particular bucket and what we're announcing our commitment for is thinking how we can do better about bringing black and other underrepresented minority teaching faculty, staff, and students to campus. And, you know, as I noted, this commitment really does build on the momentum that we have had over the last couple of years around our broader diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. But in particular, when we think about uh, hiring of black and URM teaching faculties, what, what we're thinking about doing in particular is taking advantage of an incredible um, initiative on the part of the university, that's Stanford University, to um, to to bring 10 new faculty members and tenure-line faculty members to campus um, on a search that is really centered around the impacts of race in America. Mm. So that's one piece of what it is that we're working on. 
collaborating with the university to take advantage of these t- new 10 billets for tenure line faculty members. And then on the, on the sort of lecturer side, we also have a number of um, practitioners who lecture uh, in our classes. We're working actively with our alums and also with our, our faculty to identify more black and underrepresented minority teaching faculty as well as guest speakers, too. So we can make sure that we are having voices heard in the classroom and that we're able to teach issues related to race in business and race in America. One of the topics that we've spent a lot of time thinking about uh, in in our uh, curriculum over the last few years has been generally preparing students to go out and be effective managers and, and leaders in uh, in diverse organizations and to help build uh, organizational cultures and be be effective in, in leading in a world where the, the country has become more diverse and, and the the need for businesses to create widespread opportunity in many different ways has become increasingly important and is on everyone's mind. And that's Stanford Graduate School of Business Dean Jonathan Levin and Associate Dean Sarah Soule, the architects of this new plan that Stanford has. I'm going to say it again. It's the number one business school in America, according to Bloomberg Business Week. So people look to them for leadership. It's also notable that they are not just in Silicon Valley. They are of Silicon Valley and they have helped create so much of the innovation and they drive the conversation in a really meaningful way. So what they do is going to have a dramatic impact, not just there in the Bay Area, but beyond. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we'll take you even further afield. Talk about China with author Chris Fenton. He's an entertainment executive. He's got a new book out. It's called Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion-Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today I'm bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had across the week on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. Scarlett Fu, you'll hear her voice in just a few minutes. She joined me while Carol Masser was on vacation. Well, we've talked a lot during the course of this show about some domestic issues as it relates to racial equality or lack thereof, some of the history of it, and some of what big institutions are doing to combat it. Let's broaden the conversation to China because it has been one of the stories we've been following so closely over the past couple of years. We are delighted to have back with us Chris Fenton. He's a longtime entertainment executive. And in fact, his interest in entertainment goes almost all the way back to when he was a student at Cornell, Scarlet Foo's alma mater. He went on to work as a Hollywood agent and then got deeper and deeper into the entertainment business. As he did that, he spent a lot of time going back and forth between the U.S. and China and really started to understand the complicated economic relationship, the political relationship, and the consumer relationship between the two superpowers. That led to his new book. It's called Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion-Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business. Another timely read. Check it out. I was in the process of meeting with publishers last time I was on the show, which was in October, just after Daryl Morey, the GM of the Houston Rockets, sent out that tweet supporting the uh, the, uh, Hong Kong protesters. And we we talked quite deeply about the NBA's issues. And then LeBron James had just landed back in the U.S. And he had 
um, issues explaining exactly where his point of view was on it. And, and it's amazing because the book, yes, the timing of having a book like this is fantastic um, in regards to selling books. But if it's a little bittersweet because yeah. um, we're also facing probably one of the worst relationships uh, the two countries, the U.S. and China, have had in the last 40 years. So it's a bit concerning. But yes, um, a lot of it has to do a lot more than with uh, than just with commodities or tech. Um, I was in the middle of definitely the cultural and commercial exchange between the two countries. And the culture between us is really a very strong glue, whether that's in the sports industry or, or in the movie business. Basically, you're talking about soft power. I mean, the NBA, Hollywood movies, that's America's soft power. And that's what people in China kind of fell in love with. And um, it, it's one of our most powerful ways of influencing the rest of the world. How much did that get caught up in the trade war, the trade discussions? Or was it something on the side? Well, it's it's funny because you, you have um, a lot of hawks that want to decouple completely from the relationship. And I argue to the hawks that um, some of the most powerful, if you want to say the words weapons, are our products in the cultural business. Because not only can we monetize that market, um, because there is a, a large demand in the consumer market of China for things like movies, our television program, and our sports, um, our sports industry. Um, but on top of it, there is real money to make from those products and services too. So every time a kid puts on a, a pair of Nike shoes, or every time they watch a Transformers movie, or they see an episode of, of Game of Thrones or House of Cards, they're getting a little seepage of Western democracy into that market. So there's this soft power influence that comes even with the money that we're generating. It's sort of a two-handed sword. So let's talk more about that because, and and I'm glad you alluded to that time that we talked in October because it was a bananas time to use uh, a very technical term because mm -hmm. of what was going on with the NBA. I mean, with everything else that's happened in the world, that issue with Daryl Morey and LeBron James's response to it uh, has largely faded, although with the LeBron issue, it sort of came up again with the Hong Kong protests, you know, heating up again and everything that's happened between Beijing uh, and Hong Kong since then. But remind us kind of where the NBA sits in all of this, because the estimates for the money lost around that freight fracas, as it were, was measured in, I think, a couple hundred million dollars. Yeah, well, the NBA's issues are still ongoing. I mean, obviously, COVID is, has caused uh, other issues with the NBA, but um, up to now, they are still not broadcasting the games in China. Um, there are still quite a bit of uh, merchandise, definitely from the Houston Rockets, but um, various other teams that aren't even sold over there. Um, there are some games that are delayed, streamed on, on various platforms, but a lot of that, the lion's share of the revenue that NBA was generating out of that market is non-existent right now, and they're having a real hard time trying to get it back. So um, part of that has to do, obviously, with the Daryl Morey situation back in October, which, by the way, seems like 10 years ago yeah. at this point. But then the, the, the second thing is just that the relationship between the two countries is so frayed right now, it's very difficult to make any progress um, in, the, in the correct path that the NBA has to go at this point. 
You know, when you talk about the NBA in China, I can't help but think about Joseph Tsai, who's a co-founder of Alibaba and how he's an, an owner of the New Jersey Nets. Or is it New York Nets? No, Brooklyn Nets. Brooklyn God. Nets. I'm, I'm showing my age here. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a callback, Scarlett. <laughs> it is. Um, how critical is that to mending some of the damage from between the NBA, between China, and, and kind of putting the best foot forward for both the league and the country? Well, I, I'm a little torn on that issue. I'm glad you brought him up. Um, you know, I don't know him personally, but I think um, the fact that he labeled what Daryl Morey brought up and brought to the attention of Americans, um, he called it a third rail issue and wants to keep it a third rail issue, I think is really a, a, a poor um, decision and, and a poor influence that he's trying to put through. We really need to put this stuff um, on the front burner and make it part of the national discussion right now. I mean, what happened in Hong Kong, what's happening with the Uyghurs, what's happening in various unfair trade balance issues, um, quotas, protectionist policies, forced JVs, um, tech swaps, and intellectual property um, you know, uh, protection issues, these all need to be brought up, talked about by our legislators, um, by our business leaders, and we need to construct a proper path forward. Um, the time of sort of putting our ostrich heads in the sand is over. And, and quite frankly, if we figure out the right way to engage China moving forward, where it's a much more balanced relationship and we're addressing things that are American values and principles in the right way so we feel good about it, the bilateral relationship is going to get repaired in the process. It will be disruptive and a little messy in the interim, but we'll come out the backside of it in a much better situation where, quite frankly, there'll be strategic competitors and, and partners um, just simply because we both need each other. So, Chris, let's talk about Hollywood uh, and the movie business and the entertainment business, because you have sat right at that nexus between the U.S. and China. And if the NBA's relationship with China is complicated, I feel mm -hmm. like the entertainment industry's relationship with China is 10 times more so. Everyone what are needs the a lot key of therapy. issues? What's that? Everyone needs a lot of therapy. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> what? A, a, break down the key issues for us and how you navigated them, because you did um, in your former job over at DMG Entertainment. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the micro issues um, are as varied as, for instance, when we, when we get a movie into that market, um, our share of that, that, that receipt from that film is 25% of the overall box office, whereas the global norm is closer to 50%. They also have a quota there where only 32 to maybe 35 movies internationally, which includes Bollywood and Europe in that mix, are allowed into the market. And then on top of it, they have strict censorship rules, very strict marketing and distribution rules, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that all needs to be figured out. And obviously, that sits behind a lot of other big macro trade issues. But then there's things that really affect all Americans and just essentially what makes us um, the, the people that we're proud of. And one of those is our freedom of speech. And what uh, Senator Ted Cruz and various other members of Congress have brought up is this cross-border censorship that has been um, such a big issue right now between us and China, whether it's them trying to silence Daryl Morey outside of their borders and talking on behalf of Hong Kong protesters, 
or a jacket that Tom Cruise is wearing in Top Gun, where not only do they want to censor it in their country, but they want it censored when it's shown in Argentina or Germany or in Peoria, Illinois. And that's something that we need to address. And that's Chris Fenton, author of Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business. And I loved that he reminded us about our last conversation, which was last October, uh, before he really got underway with this book, when the NBA was really front and center, the National Basketball Association, and its controversy over a single tweet by the general manager of the Houston Rockets that led to a couple hundred million dollars in repercussions, a lot of rhetoric and a lot of lost opportunity, and a lot of big questions around how the U.S. and China can do business and how global brands really can exist across the two superpowers. It's only gotten more complicated in the wake of the global pandemic and a lot of accusations certainly going from the U.S. back to China about its role in the coronavirus outbreak. So a very important book by Chris Fenton. Well, that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio. We're live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily Bloomberg Business Week podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Get the full versions of conversations you heard on this show. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. Carol Master and I will be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.